Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. If I sound like I have a lisp, it's because this has been interminable. I have been getting dental work for what seems like years. It's been weeks, but my God, I hate getting old. This is what happens, you know, your teeth go, your body goes, everything goes. So I know I have to stop feeling this way. I have to be grateful for things that work and my teeth are still working and I'm lucky that I can still fix them. So I am going to muster up all the gratitude that I can and be grateful that my teeth are still fixable, even though they hurt right now. February is a month full of so much joy. Um, It is the month that I like to remember to take care of ourselves. It's a month of love. You know, um, many people celebrate Valentine's Day, but I like to think of it as the month of self-care. This is the month that, yes, I want to love my family. I want to love my husband, but I really like to remind us in February to take care of ourselves. Please let us do some really good self-care techniques during this month. Let's get back on that horse if we've fallen off and let's take care of ourselves. If you can get out for a walk, listen, I am in New England right now and I will tell you it has been cold here. We've had a lot of snow in January, but and and we had some below zero temperatures across many parts of the country here too. So it has not been fun. But you know, we have been able to get out, we've been able to walk, we've been able to um, although our dog, <laughs> so funny, she, uh, the first day that it dipped below zero, we went out to do her business. She looked up at me. She was like, what is going on here? This is not right. And the face, oh my God, it really was something. She didn't get more than about six feet passed the doorway, did her stuff, and turned right around and went right right back in the house. And this is a dog. She's part beagle. She loves to roam. She was not interested, let me tell you. So it was a weekend movies and hot beverages and uh, snuggling and, you know, doing work always. But still, um, it was, you know, trying to get stuff done and spending time together. And that is good self-care as well. So I just want to make sure that you remember that besides taking care of others, you are very important as well. Also, February is a great month for remembering those around you who are struggling with rare disease. It is rare disease month. And at the end of the month on February 28th, it is National Rare Disease Awareness Day. So um, we like to say, show your colors. So on February 28th, and we'll talk about this some more as we get through the month, uh, please show your colors for Rare Disease Awareness Day. And 
if you have someone in your life, like I do, my Elizabeth was born with mitochondrial disease, which is a rare disease. And unfortunately she passed from that disease and all the complications of it. It is important to keep raising awareness for rare diseases. Uh, it is hard to raise funds to uh, raise awareness because so few people are affected by rare diseases. And it is, it is just important to keep being heard, to keep raising our voices. And that's why we have come together for rare and orphan diseases. Okay. My guest today was uh, really not inspiring as much as she was just jolting and really just, oh man, she just got my brain going. Um, her name is Dr. Bibi Parayesh and she is an educational therapist and a founder of One of One Kids. And we, our conversation went in a direction that was a little unexpected for both of us. It got very philosophical, but in a way that was so inspiring. Um, she holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and education from the University of Pittsburgh. She has a master's degree in developmental psychology from none other than Columbia University, where her work focused primarily on children's development of mathematical thinking and cognitive neuroscience. This woman is amazing. She's worked as a learning specialist and educational therapist in private practice for over a decade. And the emphasis on her work is on remediating learning disabilities in a one-on-one -on -one setting, but she's also a sought after speaker and community advocate for children and families around learning rights. And um, she works with children grades one through 12, covering a wide range of learning difficulties, including dyslexia, ADHD, and other spectrum disorders. In 2020, she launched the Difference is Not Deficit Project to help promote the importance of seeing learning disability as a social justice issue. And that's what we ended up talking about in our podcast today, social justice. In addition to her private practice and her advocacy work, she's also adjunct faculty at Pepperdine University in California and is involved with a number of service organizations, including the Association of Educational Therapists. So we got to talking about social justice and this was, um, you know, looking at learning disabilities as a social justice issue. This was the fascinating turn that our conversation took us today. And I wanna bring her back to talk about some other foundational issues, but this conversation um, just kind of rocked me and it was really where I needed to go. And uh, I hope that it brings you to a different place today. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. Love to know if this conversation was what you needed to hear today. I'd love to know what you think about social justice and learning disabilities as a social justice issue. Please hit me up on 
social media, send me uh, DMs and let me know what you think. Let me know if you'd like to continue this conversation with me and with Dr. Beebe. We would love to hear from you. Here we go. So uh, if you are just tuning in, and first of all, this podcast is not visual, but we may be running some promos with my face here. So if you are seeing me with a little uh, set of ears and a little uh, lion or tiger or a little cat whiskers, it's because I look absolutely terrible today. I had to go to the dentist this morning. <laughs> I have a big puffy face. I'm pale as a ghost and uh, I did not look good. So <laughs> I thought it would be best <laughs> to kind of cover up my face for the promo. So um, I'm so excited that Dr. BB and I'm going to mangle her name, even though we went through it several times. Pirayesh. Yeah. Did I get that right? Good. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Bibi Piriesh, who is so gracious to be on the show today. We're going to talk about neuroscience and neurodiversity. Yay! I'm going to geek out with her. I love it. She came up with the idea. We started talking about, well, I think that you can put lipstick on with Zoom. And then we started, you know, fumbling around and I and I found this and I thought, okay, well, this will do. I'm going to hide my face. So fun with Zoom. Anyway, we have so much to talk about today, but I want to tell you a little bit about BB. So she has a lot of interests and I am so down with all of the things that she does. She's got a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and education from the University of Pittsburgh and a master's degree in developmental psychology from Columbia, where her work was focused on mostly prim- primarily on children's developmental children's development of mathematical thinking and cognitive neuroscience. This is where I say we're going to get geeking, we're going to get to geeking out. She's worked as a learning specialist and educational therapist in private practice for over a decade. And while the emphasis of her work is on remediating learning disabilities in a one-on-one setting, she is a sought after speaker and community advocate, love it, for children and families around learning rights So you know that we love advocacy on this podcast. She works with children all the way from grade one to grade 12, covering a wide range of learning difficulties, including dyslexia, hello, you've met me, ADHD, and spectrum disorders. Um, And in 2020, she launched the Difference is Not Deficit Project to help promote the importance of seeing learning disability as a social justice issue. And that's what I want to talk to her about today. In addition to her private practice and advocacy work, she's also adjunct faculty at Pepperdine. And it's warm there, not here. (laughs) Um, And is involved with a number of service organizations. So there's so many topics. We're probably not going to get through everything today. Uh, we all know that I have trouble with time because I'm neurodiverse. And so we're going to do the best we can to touch on all of the things that I love to talk about. How did you get interested in neurodiversity and the brain in general as a topic for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of came to the the field maybe in a little bit of a different way than, than people typically do. People usually come to educational therapy, you know, from a teaching background. And I sort of came to it 
more from a science background. Um, I do come from a family of educators. So, you know, sort of the value of education and the importance of teachers was always a, a part of our family values. But I went to school pre-med. I mean, I, I thought I was going to go into like the, the medical doctor um, realm. And I learned very early that that wasn't really for me because um, from very early on, you sort of get a feel for, you know, what, what I sort of call the medical industrial complex and how dissociated everything feels. Right. And I was really interested in, in research. I wanted to understand, um, you know, at the time that I was going through school, neuroscience and cognitive science uh, was just sort of emerging as a, a field. Um, and it was really exciting and I wanted to understand it. And I would take these classes at, at the University of Pittsburgh um, where they you know, had one of the top three neuroscience departments in the country. Um, and you know, I would I would go to my classes and we would be having all these conversations about how does learning happen in the brain and how, you know, neuroplasticity and synaptic connections and all of that. Um, and then I would, you know, go to another class, like a psychology or an education elective that I was taking. Um, and the conversation was just, you know, from from decades ago, like theories from decades ago. And there was really no connection between the two. And I couldn't understand it because the the departments were not that far apart right. from one another, but there was no conversation happening between them. So I think sort of that idea from, from very early on, I was like, oh, I, I, there's a connection here. And then of course, you know, um, there is a connection and, and, and now there's, an, you know, entire fields and departments around neuroscience and education and all that. But um, I, I think that we, even though we've, we've evolved in, in some of these ways of thinking. I still think there's a huge divide between research and practice. And um, I don't mean that necessarily in, in the way that, you know, we have to make re education more scientific or, um, you know, we really have to push for you know, pushing neuroscience into education. But I, I do think that it's really important that we understand that teachers, that educators understand how the brain develops, how mm -hmm. children develop. Um, and unfortunately, that's not what we really teach in teacher education programs. We mostly mm -hmm. teach curriculum. Um, so, you know, I, I think that I sort of was aware of, of this disconnect early and was really interested in how do we connect it. And then when I just happened to, because of life circumstances, um, start to do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one work with kids with learning disabilities, um, I kind of discovered this little niche place in, in the education world where a lot of the science was being translated into actual practice, um, you know, around dyslexia and other kinds of learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I unfortunately, though, that it's it's sort of in this very limited world um, that you normally have to pay for, and it doesn't really make its way into the larger systems, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but that's how I really came into it. I sort of came in with a with a research and science interest, saw that there was a, a lack or a, a divide between research and practice, and then found a place where 
that connection can actually happen. And, and then it was very exciting. It was very exciting to see how, for example, what we understand about <clears throat> the science of reading can really change a person's life. Um, so, so yeah, that's how I came to it. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, it's, it's so awesome because it plays into, so in the last, you know, say four to six months or so, we've done several shows on dyslexia and tech and AI. Um, And, you know, the creativity that is bringing tech and neuroscience together. um, It's just mind blowing right now. And so the things that you're saying are just ringing, you know, so true and just singing to me and to so many people around the world. I think what is happening now is so exciting. Um, there's a lot of creativity happening in this. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think with like the whole AI, you know, chat GPT, all of that, I think there's like a huge panic right now in the education world because people are like, oh my God, students are going to cheat and no one's going to learn anything anymore. And they're just going to have like chat GPT write their essays. But for me, I'm thinking about wow, think about all the incredible ways that this can really benefit kids with learning disabilities. I mean, yeah. it would be incredible if, um, you know, they they could, you know, a, a student with, um, let's say, a, a disability in reading or writing or executive functioning could get, you know, a, a first draft of something and then work on it and try to make it better. I mean, it would just give them mm-hmm. access to curriculum in a completely... Or- way mobility issues or blindness or hearing difficulty or limb differences I mean you are talking about accessing a world that has not been available to people it's amazing exactly I, I I agree and I think that you know it reminds me a little bit of um you know when when the, I mean, I'm old enough to sort of remember when the internet was first becoming like, a big <laughs> and everyone was in a panic, like, oh, what's going to happen? What's gonna... And yes, it's true. It does. It does. And it will change everything. There's no question. Um, and with change, there's going to be positives and there's going to be negatives and we have to figure out how to navigate it. But um, I, I don't think that I, I think that we need to, especially for people in our fields, I think that we need to embrace it and really think critically about ways that we can use this as a tool yes. uh, to create more access for people. Yeah. So that brings me to, you know, one of your passionate uh, topics, which is social justice. Mm-hmm. So learning differences as a social justice issue. Tell me about that. You know, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think normally, um, you know, normally in conversations around learning disability and social justice, people, we we tend to sort of think about what you might consider more severe circumstances, for example, the, um, the school to prison pipeline, or like the dyslexia to prison pipeline, or, you know, the percentage, for example, of people who are in incarcerated who have a learning disability and you know why don't we address that um so you know th- there are of course those are all um incredibly important but you know i i find that um i find that learning disability is actually 
a, a really, really um, kind of easily accessible way for people to even understand the concept of social justice, especially people who might not necessarily normally, um, you know, people who are in, in positions of privilege, perhaps, who wouldn't normally even think of social justice issues. And the reason for that is that it's such a, it, it's, you, you can kind of see it in this very controlled environments that everyone has experience with. So most of us have experience with schooling. And, you know, when you go into a classroom and you have, you see students who have learning disabilities, it's clear to like to the eyes what an incredibly different experience they have mm -hmm. their schooling than, than kids who, who are typical learners. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know, it, it boggles my mind how we, we sort of just ignore that and yeah. we normalize it and we sort of move through and 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 essentially what we do um is you know we we other them we label them we you know isolate them we put them in a different um classroom sometimes or if they're in the classroom in other words we don't allow that to shift or change the larger classroom um practice culture instruction right. anything um and that to me is you know, it sort of gets to the crux of social justice, because to me, social justice is basically, you know, it's your proximity to power and um, learning dis disability in general, obviously, but learning disability, especially, you know, invisible ones um, can can really disempower students from from mm -hmm. access to um, to you know things that are going to allow them to to have power in society, right. um, and we don't we don't really you know we all sort of secretly know that, but we don't really talk about it. We don't um, make it a, a, a big enough issue, in in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah, no meaningful inclusion at all. There's different yeah, tracks. Have, yeah, we have the language right, like inclusion in my, there's so much research for example around the topic of inclusion um now we have even more kind of social justice language like diversity equity inclusion like dei work and all this other stuff so we have a lot of the language around it um but i think that you know for those of us who are actually out there in the system doing work we see that it's it's mostly just lip service because the systems are ideologically built in a way that are are just they're, they're built so that we sort of pick out we we put students on a hierarchy. They're not mm -hmm. built so that we are on a um, you know a horizontal playing field where we're learning with and from each other. No, no, it it's perpetuating the same yeah. tracking system that's always been there, and. Yeah. You know, I have a great story about this, even though it happened 20 years ago with my daughter, Elizabeth, and it's so simple um, and people are just always, you know, kind of taken aback by it um, and it didn't even happen at school. But I wanted to sign my daughter, Elizabeth, up, who was profoundly uh, disabled and in a wheelchair, but I wanted to sign her up for Girl Scouts for the brownies. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my town at that time, the brownies 
because they were the little ones, they, every month, the meeting was at somebody else's home. Well, you can imagine their homes were not handicap accessible. So I didn't know that when I went to sign her up, the sign up day was at the town library, which was accessible. So I went to sign her up for brownies. And, you know, they said, Oh, well, you know, we, you know, that they're at the meetings are, are at everybody else's home. And I said, okay, well, we're not going to be able to get into everybody's house. Can we have the meetings at the library instead? This like blew up and everybody, uh, there were, there were calls going around town about me and how I'm trying to change the Girl Scouts and like I'm threatening lawsuits. I All I did was ask if the meetings could be held at the library. That was the only question I ever asked. I never ever said one other thing besides that. Um, and that small thing just threatened everybody so much, you know? Yeah. And it's it, it was so bizarre that, um, you know, it felt so it felt so strange to people that, you know, something um, like moving a, a Girl Scout meeting was so hard for them. Yeah, you know? and what a missed opportunity, right? What a missed opportunity for all those girls to kind of un- understand the different kinds of lived experiences of, of human beings on this planet. Um, yeah. And, yep. you know, and I think that you, you know, that that speaks very much to kind of, again, you know, this this issue of ideology and culture, because culturally, it's, we just sort of have this view of like, well, that's, you know, that's your problem, I have to, I have to be careful about mine, and I have to kind of like compete to get my, you know, the best for me. And if you cannot you know, access that, or you can't be a part of that, that's a you problem. That's not really my problem. And, you know, that's part of our kind of very individualistic, highly competitive culture. Um, and, and the other problem is that it just shuts down actually innovative, creative thinking. Um, There could be, there could have been all kinds of conversations around what can we do here so that, you know, this could work. And, you know, when when COVID was happening, this was a conversation that so many of us in the field were having because right. before COVID, you know, people who had accessibility um, issues had been asking for things like, can I work from home or can I zoom into class or can I whatever right. it is, it was always a no, it was always a no. And then it was just like outrageous, like, we, you know, how can you even ask for such a thing? And then after COVID, suddenly overnight, we were all able to do it and everybody was able to call in from home. So, and and that really just showed that it's not about our inability to be able to actually provide these services. It's just mostly about a refusal to, because we don't value, we don't value people who don't kind of fit in that able-bodied, neurotypical, um, you know, way that our education system and our, our larger systems as a whole are, are built. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I don't want to sort of get into it too much, but it, it, it essentially comes back, I think, to a capitalist economy, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're only as valuable as how productive you can be. Yeah. And, and not, you know, you're valuable because you're a human being and you're here on the planet with us and we're, we're all having this experience together and learning from each other. Well, so, let's, yeah, let's stay on this social justice topic. I know we have so many things we could talk about, but <laughs> I love the social justice topic. And, you know, we were talking about some things before we hit the record button. So, you know, let's talk about ableism and its role in advocacy you, and bring this forward 20 years because, you know, I think today in my town, I don't think I would have gotten the same reaction. I do think we've moved forward a bit mm -hmm. and that people would not have, you know, gone crazy over the request to move the, the Girl Scouts meeting. But I think that the next thing would have been about how to accommodate someone at the meeting. So we've gone from where do we hold the meeting to how do we have the meeting with mm -hmm. someone who is blind and in a wheelchair and needs help participating in the meeting. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're still fighting this ableism ideology, right? We're still not having um, lessons that are accessible. We're still not having a one size fits all curriculum. We're still not, you know, it, we're still not having opportunities that are accessible to everybody. And that's why we are so, we have perfectly capable students who are not able to get diplomas. We have perfectly capable students who do not end up getting work training and who are not able to go to higher education, who are not able to get jobs, you know? So I want to throw that out to you. I, I just said a whole bunch of stuff and I wanna, hear your thoughts about how ableism in the classroom is now carrying forward to ableism in the adult world. What do we do about all of this? <laughs> um, so again, you know, I, in, in my experience and in, in my kind of, because this was definitely, you know, what do we do about all of this was definitely a question uh, for me. And I, I wanted to understand, I mean, is this kind of just like a lack of, oh, like, are, are we just not connecting the dots or is there something else going on? And I I really, I, I hate to say it uh, because it, it was incredibly difficult for me to kind of come to terms with this, but I actually think that this is a, a, a result of um, very, very specific ideological agendas. And the reason for that is that I think that naturally human beings are, are, are empathic. Mm -hmm. 
and they want to understand and they they want to connect and the way that we have set up our systems and our culture aims to segregate i mean when you think about our education system as a whole really our education system is just built to um, prepare people for the workforce and in preparing people for the workforce because the workforce is going to need different levels of people our education system creates those different levels of people yeah um and yeah. and so it's not you know we're essentially what we're doing is we're actively dehumanizing human beings so in other words you know, in the experience that you talked about where you said, you know, the, uh, the other parents or whoever were up in arms about, oh, well, we can't like change. That, when, when you are not able to empathize and include and understand, that is just as damaging to you as a human being, or if not just as, but it is also damaging to you as a human being, as the person that you are excluding and pushing back or oppressing or whatever the circumstances are it goes against our our humanity and our our i think our systems are are set up essentially to do that and that is a huge part of the problem and and this is the other reason why you know despite all the conversation and all the, um, you know, e even if we legally come and say, okay, legally the student has to be in the classroom with everybody else, that student is not really with everybody else. I I have this experience a lot of times because I, I work in, with a lot of um, uh, kind of very, like what you might call progressive in West Los Angeles, like progressive um, private schools. And, you know, after the events, you know, George Floyd um, and everything that followed, uh, there was this, there's been this huge push for you know, ra racial, more racial diversity. Um, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm noticing or I have noticed over the last few years, um, these types of schools, which are like $50,000, $60,000 a year, opening up their doors and by giving scholarships maybe to certain students of color and essentially bussing them in to their school. But okay. what only ends up happening is they come into the school for some reason, <laughs> they always end up, their pictures always end up on the cover of all the marketing material for the school. But when you go in you come to, to realize that the school is not in any way trying to understand what the real experiences of these students are or trying to shift its practices in order to meaningful adjust to the need inclusion. students, meaningful, right? Meaningful inclusion. Inclusion yeah. for inclusion's sake is, is, is nothing but meaningful inclusion where people are learning from each other and each is having an impact on each other. That's well, what we're talking it's about. Worse than nothing. It's worse than nothing because it 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 actually it act, it essentially ends up exploiting the person who is coming in. They're being exploited and used in order to put forward some kind of you know fake facade, but they're not. You know, they just end up leaving the experience thinking, "Oh, there is definitely something really wrong with me." Because even uh, when yeah. I was in this kind of setting, I wasn't able to you know kind of 
do what everybody else was doing. So, um, so yeah, you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, what I'm now seeing is that a, a lot of these anti-ableism, anti-racism, um, uh, you know, pro-DEI, all of these kinds of works or efforts um, are actually <laughs> making things worse. I mean, they're they're perpetual. You know, we're still keeping our same. the The goal seems to be that we're going to bring all of this language and ideas in in order to keep things moving. You know, business as usual, mm. um, and and that's really disheartening to see. So as we look at roles such as yourself, the psychologist. Um, and other and the educators and other professionals in the school systems, you know, the role of professionals in the schools, because I want to bring this conversation full circle as we wind up. How do we use professionals and how do you all band together? Because most of us, we go into this field to help children. Yeah. We have the best of intentions and we are trying our best. We do our best. How do we come together to push for better outcomes? So what's the next step, Phoebe? You, you asked so many great questions and I, I feel like you're sort of like mimicking all the questions that I would ask as I would go through this process. Um, I'm actually working on a on a book <laughs> for exactly you know in 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 hopes of kind of unpacking uh, because I I think you're exactly right I think that um, a lot of educators psychologists you know people who are in what I would sort of consider the healing professions mm-hmm. um, come into these fields with so much optimism so much love essentially and then they just get you know wiped. Sure. <laughs> off the you know I mean so many it's one of the reasons why so many people are are especially now kind of leaving the profession absolutely um, because they're because they have to essentially work in systems that are really quite violent I mean not just against students but against them against right. against humanity I mean to to, to be honest um, yeah I mean it's beyond just being broken right Bibi yeah. I mean it's it you can't even just say oh the system's broken it's not just broken it's it's but this is not broken. It's not broken. It's actually functioning exactly as it's meant to. That's the real problem. It's functioning exactly as it's meant to, but in order for it to function, you have to be broken. Um, and you know, one I think one of the really kind of comical, almost, but also horrific things that we do. Um, to people in professions like ours is that we say, oh, we're going to create this whole entire system that's essentially aimed at dehumanizing people, but then we're going to kind of put you here and you have to be the filter and kind of like fix the the mental health um, ramifications of all the terrible things that we're doing. That we're doing, yes. Right. And then when people can't do that, because that is an impossible job, right. um, then we're like, oh, well, you know, you're not good at What's your job. What's wrong with you? Yeah, exactly. Not so doing your job. <laughs> the same thing. Exactly. So, um, you know, and, and I think that and then one of the other things I think that happens is we keep saying, oh, the, you know, the system's broken. It's because education is not this enough or it's not that enough. So now we're going to. Um, we're going to do another reform. And now, you know, everyone try this new reform and like 
someone in the private sector is making a great deal of money from yet another reform movement, that's not really going to change anything because, again, we're just changing kind of the, the wallpaper. We're not really getting at the foundational roots of the problem. Um, and so then teachers get even more and more. Um, so I think, you know, my answer to that is um, I, I, I think that we have to actually move away from thinking that, you know, we're going to be able to come together and kind of change things, change the system, because that's like that that's that is setting up yourself for failure. I think um, I think the real change happens in the small conversations, in the small everyday battles that we fight. Um, I think this change happens when we recognize the systems that we're that we are functioning in, when we recognize that they're set up against us and our students, um, when we don't just kind of like blindly go in and assume that you know everything is for for the good of everyone. Right. So it, it's sort of understanding all of that, acknowledging all of that for ourselves, for our students, and then very intentionally and mindfully pushing back and resisting in in the places where it's possible. So for example, um, you know, like one of the places where, where something like this comes up a lot outside of just everyday classroom experiences it, for kids with learning disabilities is in IEP meetings or all of these meetings that we have around, um, you know, services and all of that. And I think a really important question that Anyone who is in that meeting, whether you're a teacher, an administrator, support staff, you know, advocate, parent, the question that you should be asking, I think, is who set up these rules and who are they here to benefit? Because we know that the law was not written by people who are, the, the law was written by people who are neurotypical. It was written for people or for, for kind of pushing forward systems that support neurotypical people. Um, and the aim here is not really to see what are the true needs of this student and how can we help them reach their potential. The aim is to say, these, these are the, the standards. In what ways are you meeting them? In what ways are you not meeting them? In what ways are we required to give you a access to some of this stuff so you know you don't sue us so you have to ask yourself who who am i fighting for here am i fighting for the student or am i oh. fighting to uphold the system and i think that when you begin to recognize some you know some of these questions in yourself for yourself then you might in, in the smallest ways, maybe you write an IEP goal in a different way. Maybe yeah. you respond to something that comes up in a slightly different way. And these are the small ways in which you fight and you resist, recognizing how exhausting that is. But that's really, um, you know, my, my hope is that the more of us that become conscious of this because it really is about consciousness the more you become the more of us who become conscious of this then larger systems can change but one enlightened person or or, or mm. one group of consciously um you know of, of conscious people aren't going to be able to change an entire system yes, yes. So, yay so, yeah. i dream of an army of advocates 
just <laughs> getting this done because until we do that, nothing will change. And, you know, the more people who are putting their brain power to work on coming up with these creative solutions like you are right now, then we will change things for the better because everybody's ideas will add on to the ideas that you're having. And eventually we will put pressure on the few people whose voices are the loudest or who have the power right now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that we're going to see this in our lifetime, unfortunately, Bibi, but I remain optimistic. And why stop fighting? Because, you know, there's no point in rolling over. It doesn't, well, I don't know that it doesn't cost us anything. I was going to say it doesn't cost us anything. It does cost something. It costs us a great deal. Yes, it costs us a great deal. But it, it's but what does it cost us to the, stop? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't, like, I, I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't want to get too philosophical here now, but I think that we're all, I mean, that, that's the name of the game on this planet. You know, we're all here for that good fights. Um, and the second that you that you kind of give up on that, you've sort of given up on, on, on the name of the game for being human. So that's what it would cost you. But that's, that's not to say that consistently engaging and resisting doesn't come at a high price. It does. Of course it does. Um, but... You know, that's, I, I think that's what it truly means to be not just an educator, but to be educated. I mean, it, it is to engage in these, in these questions um, and yes. to, and to, to stand up for uh, your authenticity. I mean, that's. And also people who, who don't have a voice, you know, people who can't stand up for themselves. So listen, this has been an amazing conversation. I just cannot express how grateful I am that you are out there fighting the good fight for all of us. I wish we had more time to talk about it. When do you think you're going to finish your book? Um, it's looking, I think, I mean, these things take such a long time. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm thinking 2024, I'm hoping. <laughs> okay. Well, keep us posted on that. Um, the con this conversation took a little bit of a different turn than I was expecting when I started it, but it was awesome. I think I might want to have you come back if you're if you're game a little bit later this year to talk about maybe some of the basic things about just understanding neurodiversity and also you know di diagnosis and and things about we talked a little bit before we hit the record button about not pathologizing kids and things like that. So maybe taking a step back, but, um, but I adore talking about topics of advocacy and ableism and how to really get in there and engage and, um, and that army of advocates, you know, that is really, that's my dream. So I appreciate you going down that path with me. And uh, staying loose and flexible, and especially since uh, I didn't feel totally on my game today, given my <laughs> given my mouth, and you know, thanks for hanging in with the whiskers and everything. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. 
It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for providing a platform for these conversations, because I think they're so important. And we don't talk, you know, when we talk about learning disability, you know, it, it usually is about like, oh, what are, you know, what are the diagnoses and how do you navigate the systems? And we don't have these larger conversations around how taxing it is to have to do um, all of this because, because we're in a system that, you know, essentially isolates. Well, it so, looks so different and I'm so fascinated. I think about, um, you know, I was an undiagnosed kid and I think, you know, had I been diagnosed as a kid, I think my life would have been so different. I doubt that I ever would have gone to law school and, you know, yeah, I struggled a lot, but I think I, my life would have probably been very limited. You know, I, I think labels are hard sometimes. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 um, it's interesting to think about labels and diagnoses and, and the impact that they have on people and what kind of person you are and how you internalize those things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think diagnosis is important, but I do think that it's the value. It's the value that we give and the stigma that is attached um, that can really create difficulties for people. And you can't change that without addressing larger, again, cultural ideological issues. Um, so, so yeah, yes, that would be a whole other conversation. A whole other show. What you get with that diagnosis, you know, <laughs> when, when you get the diagnosis, I finally got one when I needed the extra help in college and it, it, it opened up the door to the learning resource center for me when I needed it, or I never would have made it through college still took me seven years, but you know, that's, you know, that's what, that's what you have to you have to ask those questions, right? So what are you getting for it? So I think that's another conversation I would just love to have with you on a different day. But I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been such a pleasure getting to know you. So thank you so much. And really, I for the audience, you have to check out BB. Uh, she's amazing. And we're going to have all her contact information in our show notes. Hopefully she will let us in on when her book gets published. We will connect you guys with all of that. And if you are a person who wants to geek out on all of the neuroscience and everything that she's doing, we will make sure that you can do that. So thank you so much, BB. Have a great thank night. For having me. Yep. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.